What's up, everyone? I'm Joe Pompliano, and this is The Joe Pomp Show. I hope everyone is having a fantastic morning, noon, or night, wherever you are in the world. I want to talk about two things specifically today. Number one, we have some beef going on in the sports media world, Stephen A. Smith and Dan Levitard. I want to run through a little bit about what was said and some of the nuance behind this topic, who's right, who's wrong, etc. Number two, I want to talk about March Madness, the men's and the women's tournament, some of the ticket prices that we've seen, viewership, and so forth. These numbers are fascinating, and I think there is a lot to learn. Let's get right to it. All right, let's start with Stephen A. Smith and Dan Levitard. So for those that aren't aware of what's going on, Stephen A. Smith went on Dan Levitard's show or podcast the other day, and Dan Levitard took a shot at him, essentially is what happened. He said, I hate what you and Skip Bayless did to sports television. And he was alluding to the fact and later talked about the fact that they basically brought up this new generation of people that just want hot takes and debate and removed all the nuance from the conversation. And Stephen A. Smith didn't take it that well. He actually went right back at Dan Levitard and said something along the lines of, who the hell are you? You can't sit up there and say that about me. What about you? What have you been up to? You're a part of this. You're not innocent, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I don't really want to get into the debate around like who's right and who's wrong based on this specific conversation. But I do think that there's some important nuance to this and clarity because this has now gone back and forth for a few days here. And this morning, it's Wednesday. You'll be listening to this on Thursday. I wrote the newsletter on Stephen A. Smith because I don't think a lot of people understand the path that he actually took to get here. One, it was obviously extremely difficult, but two, I don't necessarily agree that this was all his fault. I certainly agree that culture has changed around sports talk and sports in general and hot takes have become the norm and, and everything's clickbait now on Twitter and TikTok has taken over and everything's short form and there's much less nuance in this conversation and everything has has been dripped down to dopamine hits. So I think that's certainly true. And to be honest, I'm not even really a big fan of first take. I watch it sometimes. I think it's quality to some degree, but essentially what they're doing is Stephen A. Smith just sits in one chair. They rotate people in depending on the topic and he argues with them. You have to pick the other side of the topic. You get like 60 to 90 seconds to respond to each point. And again, it removes all nuance of the discussion. It's basically who can yell and prove their one point the fastest, the quickest, and the most eloquent way. I don't agree that that's the best way to conduct some of this stuff, but it's entertainment. And the market has ultimately proven that that's what people want, right? People watch the show. There's a reason why it's so popular. So I want to talk a little bit about why Stephen A. Smith does this and how he got there. So for those of you that don't know, Stephen A. Smith is the highest paid employee at ESPN outside of Troy Aikman and Joe Buck. He makes $12 million a year at ESPN just through his salary and his deal there. He reportedly makes another $3 million from his podcast and his book deal. So he's making a lot of money. To put that into context, that's higher than the median salary across the NFL, NBA, and MLB combined, right? So Stephen A is making a lot of money talking about sports, not playing sports. But the reason why I think his story is so interesting is because of the road he took to get there. So for those that don't know, Stephen A. Smith, he grew up in Queens. He was born in the Bronx, grew up in Queens. One of six children. His parents came from the U.S. Virgin Islands when he was, I, I think it was right before he was born, but around that age. His dad wasn't around. His mom worked several jobs basically to keep them afloat. He went to the Fashion Institute of Technology. I'm not sure exactly what he thought he wanted to do, but he eventually transferred after one year to Winston-Salem State University on a basketball scholarship. He barely played. I think he averaged one point. He broke his kneecap his freshman year, never played again. So 
There was a huge dream and ambition to go professional in sports. When that did not happen, he took the next best thing, which he thought was a journalism degree, and went after that route. He ended up becoming famous of sorts at his school because he wrote an article while he was still there saying that his legendary Hall of Fame basketball coach, Clarence Gaines, should retire. The school got pissed about it. Clarence Gaines said, ah, let him off the hook. He told me he was going to write it. He said he wants to be honest. He's got journalistic integrity, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. He ended up later on getting a couple different newspaper jobs. He literally was working for free. And I think the most interesting part about this story is Stephen A. Smith was very in tune with where he was coming from. He was coming from an HBCU. He wasn't coming from Northwestern or UCLA or Columbia or any of these other top journalism schools. So what he did was very smart. He went out and he built a portfolio of 250 articles that he published, real articles, things that he wrote himself and things that he published for these different newspapers, lower level stuff. And he did that for one specific reason. And the reason was to show people when he went to the interviews that he was serious. He said, look, you can have a degree. You can say you're serious. You can say you're going to do this, but I literally have work to show you and I can show you how serious I am. So that ended up getting him a job at the New York Daily News. He was covering high school sports. He did that for a year or two. Then he went back to the Philadelphia Inquirer. He was covering the beat for Temple University. Then he went to the 76ers beat. Next thing you know, he's at ESPN doing NBA Countdown. He did a radio show. And then he left ESPN, actually, which most people forget about. He ended up leaving ESPN and having a breakup with ESPN. Basically, they just weren't seeing eye to eye. They had a problem, and they just weren't seeing eye to eye on stuff. He was arguing with people. And really what Stephen A. Smith says was the problem was that he was just bringing problems and not solutions to the bosses. So he kept going to the bosses at ESPN and basically saying things that he didn't like and things he wanted improved rather than bringing them uh, solutions to these problems. So he goes away for a couple of years. He comes back and eventually he gets put on first take with Skip Bayless in 2012. And the important thing to remember here is First Take is the most successful sports morning show probably of all time. It's been rated the number one morning show for sports talk on cable television for the last 11 straight years. And the only constant in that entire 11-year span is Stephen A. Smith. Skip Bayless ended up leaving, took a huge contract with Fox Sports. Max Kellerman came in. He ended up leaving. He has his own stuff now with ESPN. And Stephen A. Smith now does the show alone, and they rotate people in to argue with him. So I think, one, Stephen A. Smith deserves a lot of credit for the success of the show. But two, I don't necessarily think it's appropriate, or intellectually honest at least, to put all of the blame on him, right? So the first thing I think about this is First Take existed before Stephen A. Smith. The show was started in 2007. There were several other hosts before Stephen A. Smith came in. He just did it better than anyone else, right? He was passionate. He was loud. He made good points. He was in tune with culture. He took a pro player stance. He was very well-spoken, right? You can name A through Z of the things that he was doing really well. So I think that's part of it. The second part of this that I would say is he's not the only one. There's several, 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 several other people that are doing this. And the reason why other people are doing it is because the free market has decided that it's valuable, Right. If ESPN, if they put this show on and the ratings were terrible and it tanked and everyone said the show sucked, they would take it off air. You think they have time for that? No. ESPN is, is massive. It's mostly owned by Disney. They have freaking eight cable stations in the United States. They have an additional 26 abroad. They host 25,000 live events a year, and they pay billions and billions of dollars annually for broadcasting rights across all the major leagues like the NFL, NBA, MLB, college football, UFC, SEC, and so forth. You get the point. It's a massive network. If the show sucked, they would take it off air. 
but the viewership has been amazing. They average over 500,000 people live watching every single show. So while I agree that it is quite frankly annoying that sports media has become this way and people are arguing back and forth, let's not act like it's just Stephen A. Smith. We all know that's not necessarily the truth. Dan Levitard and plenty of other people do similar stuff. And the best example of this is literally what happened right after the argument. Stephen A. Smith went on his podcast and talked for two or three episodes about this and was defending himself and doing all this, which he has totally the right to do. But he played it up for content, and Dan Levitard did the same thing. He was posted on Instagram and Twitter and talked about it later on, too. So part of this is them defending and stating their case after things went viral. All these aggregation accounts on Twitter were retweeting it and, and farming the quotes and trying to get people riled up. That's what they do. I get it. 100% understand. But I do think that Stephen A. Smith can't be blamed for this. I think he has an extremely impressive resume, whether you like him or not. He has certainly made tons of mistakes, right? Like he has been suspended from ESPN before. He has done things wrong. He actually was let go one time, right, when he left in the early or late 2000s. So I wouldn't say that he hasn't made mistakes. I think he would say the exact same thing. The part that I would argue is that it's all his fault. Sports media has changed. We have gone to a place now where people want to argue. They want hot takes. They want short-form content. It's the exact reason why TikTok has become so popular, why Instagram Reels have become popular, why YouTube Shorts have become popular. Everyone wants things in the shortest amount of time. Attention spans have shrunk. I am betting that that will change. It's the exact reason why I do this podcast. It's the same reason why I do interviews. It's the same reason why I write newsletters. I could just sit there and tweet out things all day long, right? And just do short form content, short videos, whatever it is. But I think that there is power in nuance. I think that is going to make a comeback. I think people want substance. I think people care about different topics. I think that they want the details behind them. And that's my bet. And I think a lot of other people think the same. But congrats to Stephen A. Congrats to Dan Levitard. Both of them have had immense success. Neither of them are necessarily right, and neither of them are necessarily wrong. Just like everything else, it's not black and white, and there is nuance. All right, everyone. Quick word from the sponsor of this episode, So Rare. This is probably one of the hottest companies in sports right now. It was founded in 2018 by two guys named Nicola Julia and Adrian Monfort. They loved fantasy sports and sports collectibles, so they took the best parts of both industries and combined them to create So Rare. Athletes like Lionel Messi, Keelan Mbappe, Rudy Gobert, and Serena Williams are ambassadors for the company, and they now have more than 2 million registered users in 185 countries. But here's how it works. So Rare lets you buy, sell, and trade digital trading cards of your favorite players. And rather than just looking at them, you can use these trading cards to enter fantasy sports competitions for digital rewards, like more cards, and experiential rewards, like going to an NBA game, meeting players, or winning merch. But here's the best part. It's completely free to get started. And if you go to SoRare.com slash JoePomp to sign up, SoRare is going to give you an additional 20 free cards for your collection. So go to SoRare.com slash JoePomp to sign up, and let's see if you can beat me. All right, let's get back to the episode. All right, the next thing I want to talk about is the NCAA March Madness Tournament, both the men's and the women's. So this stuff has been freaking crazy over the last few weeks. I ended day one. I think I had all of the games right, except for one. Day two, I had a couple of mistakes. Obviously, Arizona went down, and there was a few other games that I didn't pick right. But I was sitting there. I had picked Furman over Virginia. I had a couple other upsets. I was feeling amazing. Needless to say, that bracket has tanked. No possible chance of me winning my bracket pool with 100 other people right now. The men's bracket has been insane. It's the first time in history that we don't have a one through three seed in the final four. Right now, we're looking at San Diego State, which is a five seed, versus FAU, which is a nine seed. And then there's Miami, which is a five seed, versus UConn, which is a four seed. 
I don't have the betting lines in front of me, but I imagine UConn is heavily, heavily favored to win this tournament now. They've been blowing people out. They're probably a little bit better than a four seed regardless, and they look really good. But more what I want to talk about is the women's side of this bracket. So if you've been under a rock, the women's team is blowing up from a ratings and ticket price perspective. For example, Louisville versus Iowa last week average. 2.5 million viewers on ESPN. So 2.5 million viewers. To put that into context, out of every single game on ESPN this year, ESPN is paying millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars for the rights to ESPN basketball every single year. Not a single game has had more than 2.5 million viewers average on ESPN this year for the NBA, right? So that women's college basketball elite eight basketball game with Caitlin Clark, who has taken over the internet over the last few weeks, averaged more viewers than the NBA. And I think this is important for a few different reasons. One, that means viewership is up 94% from last year's Elite Eight game during the same time. The Elite Eight total averaged 2.2 million viewers. So the rest of the games were just slightly below that 2.5 number, which is up 43% year over year. And there's a few things driving this. So People sometimes get chipped for this, and I don't really understand why. It's it's guys under the lens of like they hate women's sports, and I just don't think that's true. The idea that the women's tournament is usually just less exciting. If you look at the numbers, there's less upsets in the women's tournament historically, both during the regular season, but also specifically during March Madness, than there are during the men's tournament. That's just how it's been. That's literally what the numbers say. And that has changed this year. Right. So we have South Carolina in the final who's undefeated. That brings a certain level of pressure and fandom and all of that along with it. We have Iowa, who is not a number one seed. Stanford was the number one seed in that bracket. So Stanford lost to Mississippi and Iowa's in there. They have Caitlin Clark, who is referred to as the Steph Curry of women's basketball. She can literally pull up from anywhere on the court. She had a 40 point triple double the other day, literally the first player in, in NCAA tournament history to do 41 points, 12 assists, and 10 rebounds. Incredible, incredible, incredible game. Then the other side of the bracket, we have LSU, who's also a three seed, and Indiana was in their bracket who lost the number one seed. And then we have Virginia Tech playing them, who is a one seed. So while March Madness on the men's side doesn't have any typical blue blood programs, there's like this weird world where you kind of want a little bit of upsets, but you don't want too many, right? Because now when you look at the men's side, we have four schools Outside of UConn and Miami, the other two schools are, are, are very small, FAU and San Diego State. And then Miami's not a basketball school traditionally. UConn is, but again, it's a Northeastern smaller school, we'll call it. Their women's basketball team has been more successful over the last couple of decades than they have. And you get in this weird world where, would it be helpful to have a Duke there? Yeah. Would it be helpful to have a Kentucky there? Yeah. Would it be helpful to even have Houston or Alabama there? Yeah. But at the end of the day, it's exciting, exciting, exciting basketball. The viewership hasn't been amazing because of that, but the earlier games were good. So it'll be interesting to see what happens with the Final Four and the championship. But on the women's side, when you look at USC and Iowa specifically, this has a chance to be the highest viewed women's college basketball game of all time. I think they have to get to like 5 million viewers, which really isn't that far off from some of the other stuff when it comes to viewership from last year in the Final Four. So we'll see what happens there. But Caitlin Clark has obviously played a huge part in this. And then the other part I want to talk about quickly is the ticket prices. So from a ticketing perspective, the get-in price to go to a men's Final Four game right now is about $100. The ticket price to get into a women's Final Four game is about $300. So three times more expensive to go to the women's game than it is to go to the men's. 
And there's a reason for this, right? I've seen this on Twitter. ESPN tweeted it. All these other places, Fox have tweeted. All these other accounts have tweeted it. Basically, trying to pump up and say the women's tournament is killing it this year. And I'm literally exact. I'm saying the exact same thing. I'm agreeing with them on all of that stuff. But the nuance to this is that the women are playing in a much smaller arena. There's 20,000 people in their arena. They're playing at American Airlines Arena in Dallas, and there's 72. It's a football stadium where they're holding the men's final four. 72,000 seats. So 20,000 seats for 72,000. Supply and demand is undefeated. Obviously, the ticket prices are going to be a little bit different. The women's tournament is actually almost sold out. I think they only had like 100 tickets left as of an hour or two ago. The men's tournament has a bunch of tickets left. Prices will probably continue to drop up until the final four. Although if you buy a $100 ticket, you're sitting in the freaking rafters. You're not going to be able to see anything because it's a football stadium. So there's some nuance to this. I think it's kind of naive to leave part of that out. But I've been very, 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 very pleased with the results. And it's been very cool to see kind of the added attention that's been on the women's tournament this year because of not only the star power of Caitlin Clark and USC as a team in general, South Carolina being undefeated, but also the upsets, I think, have played a huge role in this. So that is one thing to keep in mind when that game's coming up. Viewership record could be broken. But lastly, I want to go through a couple quick topics real quick, just quick hitters. Red Sox, Boston Red Sox got a new clubhouse. It's pretty awesome. I recommend you go check it out. It has custom maple lockers, new lighting and sound systems, food and beverage stations. The coaches actually have their own area now with separate showers and everything else. And then in the middle of the locker room, there's obviously couches and stuff like that. But they created these two TV displays. There's eight TVs on each side, and they put them in a square. So it's 360 views that look like a jumbotron. Pretty awesome. Locker room at, at Boston was getting pretty old. The stadium, for those that don't know, is 110 years old. So a renovation was needed. They spent some money there. Of course, the elephant in the room is why didn't they spend this on players, right? How many Boston Red Sox players have left over the last few years because John Henry and the organization have not been willing to pay them? Spoiler alert, it's a lot. Secondly, Angels, the Los Angeles Angels, a report came out today from The Athletic saying that they were not going to be bringing their radio broadcast team on the road. So for those that are not familiar with the process, the radio team travels with the team. They go to the games at opposing team stadiums. They announce the games from there. It's historically been done because you obviously there's no delay in anything, but also you get the energy of the ballpark. You're talking about things in real time. Everyone has seen these calls. These calls go viral all the time about the radio broadcasters and how energetic they are and how into the game and enthused they are. But the Angels said this year that they're not going to be bringing them. They're going to save some money. My take on this is that it's incredibly short-sighted and stupid. You're a Major League Baseball organization. The budget for a team like that is probably low seven figures to be able to bring them to every single away game. I don't understand why they would do that. And the other thing that I actually tweeted out was no one should be expecting them to pay Shohei Otani $500 million if this is what they're doing. They're pinching pennies. It's not the right move. I understand that these things can be done from home now. There's a reason why every other team in Major League Baseball doesn't do it the way the Angels are doing. They did it during COVID. Literally, teams tried this during COVID, and then they went back to it because it wasn't nearly as good. So I'm surprised the Angels have done it. Two other things. One is, I don't know if you guys remember the cheating fish scandal from a few uh, from last year. It was when those guys got caught sticking the weights inside of the fish at a fishing tournament. It came out that they had done this at several other tournaments, and they were basically the video came out, and it was everyone yelling at them and so forth. They actually were in court this week, and they pleaded guilty. So they got their fishing licenses suspended for three years. They're probably going to get probation for six months. The authorities took their $100,000 fishing boat that they had won in a previous tournament, most likely by cheating. Okay, lastly, Ty Lue. 
Ty Lue is the coach of the LA Clippers. If you don't know who he is, he coached the Cleveland Cavaliers. He won a championship with LeBron. He's coached a few other places also. He played on the Lakers. He's the guy that Allen Iverson stepped over in that infamous move. He was on the Pivot podcast. It was either this week or last week. I listened to it the other day. It's great. You guys should check it out. He tells a bunch of awesome stories. Literally 10 minutes in, there was like three or four stories where I was like, damn, this is awesome. He talks about how when he first got to LA, it was during the lockout season during his rookie year. He went to Shaq's house, gave him $20,000 in cash, never paid him back. Shaq was just like, hey man, take care of yourself during the lockout. He told a story about how the day that he got drafted, since then, 25 years later, he has sent his mom and his grandma a check. They never worked again a day in their lives every single month for 25 years straight. He talks about his kids. He talks about his job, the stress, his family members that have passed away. It's a great conversation. I highly recommend you check it out. Last but not least, next podcast on uh, Saturday will be about Major League Baseball. I'm going to break down everything that goes into the 2023 season from a financial perspective and a business perspective. So be on the lookout for that. Otherwise, have a great day. All right, everyone. That's it for today. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And as always, I appreciate you listening to The Joe Pomp Show. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on Apple or Spotify so that you don't miss any episodes going forward. And if you are looking for additional content, check out my daily newsletter at readhuddleup.com or follow me on Twitter at Joe Pompliano. I hope you have a great day and I'll see you next time.